0: It's a packed house. Give yourself a round of applause. Such is our desire for desire, it seems. Welcome to All About Women 2014 and What Do Women Want? Adventures in the Science of Female Desire. My name is Natasha Mitchell. I'm from ABC Radio National. If you're a tweeter, don't forget that hashtag, hash, allaboutwomen. And, uh, and if you're, uh, you've got a mobile phone, put it on vibrate and have a really good time. <laughs> the harder, the better. Or maybe not. You might like it soft and slow. (laughs) We are looking forward to you participating in the discussion today, scarcely more than a fairy tale. That is how our next speaker describes the following assumptions. That women are naturally or biologically more inclined towards monogamy than men. That women have lower libidos. That women initiate sex less. That women don't want sex with strangers, that women aren't turned on by visual stuff. Uh, his latest book investigating why all or at least some of them or nuances or aspects of all of these are somewhat bollocks uh, has struck such a chord that I think it's been translated into, and there's somewhat, I mean there's lots of sort of shades of grey in this. Um, Fifteen languages it's been tra- That wasn't actually an intentional pun. There will be lots of that today, I have no doubt. Been translated into 15 languages and I'd be really interested to know what languages they are. He's not afraid uh, of going where others fear to tread. Daniel Bergner has uh, gone to Civil War, ravaged Sierra Leone in his book, In the Land of the Magic Soldiers. He's uh, spent much time inside one of Louisiana's hardest prisons in his book, God of the Rodeo, from Civil War to Incarceration. Where would you go next? Sex. <laughs> so his other two books are The Other Side of Desire, Four Journeys into the Far Realms of Lust and Longing, and more recently this one, What Do Women Want? Adventures in the Science of Female Desire. So let's don out safari hats, our fishnets, and give him a terrific <laughs> welcome.
1: Well, thank you, Natasha. That was a great introduction, and you've gotten all the laughs, and so now I can be really serious. Um, (laughs) Thank you for coming out on this beautiful day. Um, I thought I'd start just by saying a little bit about how I came to this subject, how I, a man, uh, wound up writing this book, and then I'm going to end with a little bit from some messages I've received from a recent pen pal um, that I've developed here in Australia, a woman who's begun writing to me since my book came out. And I think some of the things she has to say are are very apt. But um, as Natasha mentioned, I um, have been writing about uh, other subjects in a very intimate way Um, When I went to the prison in Louisiana and spent the better part of two years there, I kind of latched on to a small set of convicts, um, and convicts there are truly there for life. There is no parole in the state of Louisiana to understand their lives. Same thing in Sierra Leone amidst that civil war, latched on to a a few um, fighters there, latched on to some British soldiers there who were intervening, etc., So again, establish this great intimacy, but I felt this um, lack in what I was able to do as a writer. I'd actually start out as a novelist. The first book I published was a novel, and I felt like if I was going to continue to pursue this life of writing nonfiction in this deep and intimate way, that I had to somehow be able to cross a line, cross a line into the world of love and into the world of lust because sex is so central to who we are as human beings. And although those other books, the book about prison, the book about civil war, do contain some romantic stories, it's tough to show up in a prison or show up in a civil war zone and start really asking people about their sex lives. It kind of makes no sense whatsoever. People are going to look at you like you are a weirdo and uh, pretty soon you're no longer going to have Uh, access to the British soldiers' intervention. (laughs) You are going to be cast out. So I began to work on a book previous to this one, The Other Side of Desire, um, as a way to look at the relationship between lust and longing. And I thought, let me do this by going outside the norm, whatever the norm is, and that's something we can talk about later, but by going far outside the norm. So it's four portraits of people whose erotic drives are quite a bit um, just outside the mainstream. And it was during uh, researching for that book, which is mostly about four individuals, but also contains some science, that I spent time with a scientist in Toronto who said, you know, while you're up here, you really ought to just meet my wife. She's doing fascinating work. Just spend an hour in her lab. And that is how I met Meredith Chibbers, who began this current book for me. She was indeed doing fascinating work, work that, as she would later put it, um, is kind of overturning our conventional beliefs about female sexuality. That could sound really arrogant on her part. It could sound like sort of scientific bravado. I don't think it is. She was doing it in this little dim laboratory. No one was much paying attention at the time. And it was from there that then I branched out to spend time. This was eight years ago now, so it's been that long of a conversation to spend time with other scientists, most of the women, and then to spend time with everyday women, talking to them again and again and again uh, about their erotic lives so that I could thread those stories through the science of this book. Um, So I just want to start, I'm mostly going to talk, but read just a little bit from the very beginning of the book, just to give you a sense of things. And this is from page one, uh, so no need for um, context. This is just uh, the beginning of my time with Meredith Chivers, and it's from chapter one called Animals. On the subject of women and sex, Meredith Chivers was out to obliterate the civilized world. The social conventions, the lists of sins, all the intangible influences needed to go. I've spent a lot of time, she said, attempting to get back in my head to what life was like for proto-humans. When Chivers and I first met seven years ago, she was in her mid-30s. She wore high-heeled black boots that laced up almost to her knees and skinny, stylish, rectangular glasses. Her blonde hair fell over a scoop-necked black top. She was young, but distinguished scientist in a discipline whose name, sexology, sounds something like a joke, a mismatching of prefix and suffix of the base and the erudite. Yet the matching is in earnest. The ambitions of the field have always been grand, and Chivers's dreams were no different. She hoped to peer into the workings of the psyche, to see somehow past the consequences of culture, of nurture, of all that is learned, and to apprehend a piece of women's primal and essential selves, a fundamental set of sexual truths that exist inherently at the core. Men are animals. On matters of Eros, we accept this as a kind of psychological axiom. Men are tamed by society, kept, for the most part, between boundaries, yet the subduing isn't so complete as to hide their natural state, which announces itself in endless ways through pornography, through promiscuity, through the infinity of gazes directed at infinite passing bodies of desire, and which is affirmed by countless lessons of popular science that men's minds are easily commandeered by the lower, less advanced neural regions of the brain, that men are programmed by evolutionary forces to be pitched inescapably into lust by the sight of certain physical qualities or proportions, like the 0.7 waist-to-hip ratio in women that seems to inflame heterosexual males all over the globe, from America to Guinea-Bissau, that men are mandated, again by the dictates of evolution, to increase the odds that their genes will survive in perpetuity, and hence that they are compelled to spread their seed to crave as many .7s as possible. <laughs> but why don't we say that women, too, are animals? Chivers was trying to discover animal realities. Just skipping forward, I describe a bit of where she works, which always seemed kind of poetic to me. By the time I did first meet her in Toronto, and then she um, has a professorship now in a, in a tiny town um, in Canada, which was once a French fur trading post. It's, it really is a kind, not quite outback, but it's out there, and, and that seemed fitting to me. The city is stark and scant enough that it is easy to imagine an earlier emptiness the buildings gone, the pavement gone, almost nothing there except evergreens and snow. And this seemed fitting to me when I visited her, because to reach the insight she wanted, she needed to do more than strip away societal codes. She needed to get rid of all the streets, all the physical, as well as the incorporeal structures that have their effects on the conscious and the unconscious, she needed to recreate some pure, primordial situation so that she could declare, this is what lies at the heart of women's sexuality. Plainly, she wasn't going to be able to establish such conditions for her studies. Almost surely, for that matter, such pure conditions never existed because proto-humans, our forehead-deficient ancestors of some hundreds of thousands of years ago, had proto-cultures. But what she possessed was a plethysmograph, a miniature bulb and light sensor that you place inside the vagina. This is what her female subjects did as they sat on a brown leatherette Lazy Boy chair in her small, dimly lit lab in Toronto. Semi-reclining on the Lazy Boy, each subject watched an array of porn on an old, bulky computer monitor. The two-inch-long glassine tube of the plethysmograph beams light against the vaginal walls and reads the illumination that bounces back. It measures blood flow. It was a way to get past the obfuscations of the mind, the interference of the brain's repressive upper regions. As they enrolled in the study, Chivers's subjects had identified themselves as straight or lesbian. This is what all of them saw. Okay, so then, I describe a... Yeah, I know, I know, I know. Um, <laughs> um, there's, really, there's really no excuse for me not to read the porn here, I understand that, but I'm, <laughs> I'm gonna skip past it because I'll blush. Um, so, but basically what these women, self-declared, self-identified straight and gay see are scenes, um, Women with men, men with men, women with women, men alone, and women alone, and then bonobos, a species of ape, having sex. Uh, And they're also so they're measured. Their arousal is measured via the plethysmograph physically, and then subjectively, it's measured via a keypad which each woman is given, um, and by which she can rate her own state of being turned on. Now, let me just skip ahead just a tiny bit. She also does this with men, and she's done this over and over again, so the, the results are no fluke. Now, for the men, uh, the results are quite predictable, almost sort of boringly so. Like, the, the physical uh, responses are what, she, what Meredith calls categorical, that is, the self-declared gay men are turned on by the gay porn, uh, self-declared straight men by the straight porn, et cetera, and um, you know, subjectively, same, same thing. Okay, so, the women. Uh, the women, uh, when they're given the key, with the keypad, right, uh, are also categorical. So straight women say, I'm really turned on by, you know, that straight scene, uh, not really turned on by anything else, and the gay women, same, same thing, vice versa. Uh, but the plethysmograph says something entirely different. So physically... The women, whether straight or gay, are turned on by the entire array of porn. There is a consistent, (laughs) wide, immediate, and immediate is is important here, gap between the subjective and the objective measurement. And that includes the bonobos having sex. Any idea that men primitive, primal men would be turned on at least a little bit by those bonobos having sex. No. Total flatline. But for the women, yes. <laughs> so. <laughs> um, so that's what I walked into. I mean, that was all because her husband said, why are not you, you're up here anyway, just, you know, come spend some time. And, and I did. I basically spent the last eight years now in this ongoing <laughs> conversation, <laughs> you know, because it, it presents all sorts of, of riddles. Um, But one thing it sort of dispels right away when you look at these graphs um, is that there's something kind of weak, wan, about women's libidos. It also dispels this idea that we've so long clung to that women are somehow less visual than men. There's nothing unvisual going on uh, as women are watching, you know, this pornography and responding to it. So... Um, there's you know there's so much to to say here about Meredith's work and and I go through it in in detail in the book but I just want to skip ahead to a, a couple of other studies that she did so she uh, looked at a set of straight women you now and played for them audio pornography so she could get more elaborate about the scenes um, and what she did was she played them scenes featuring uh, played them uh, scenes featuring, uh, you know, heterosexual couples and lesbian uh, scenarios. Uh, And then she also uh, contrasted scenes with very close friends and strangers. And it's important to note that the friends were really, really, really good looking. They're described in detail. So let's say the male friend is like, you know, strapping back and, you know, shoulders. You know, I'd love to have and and all all that. So I mean, you know, he's 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 a he's a god. Um, and uh, so the so all the women subjectively with the keypad now say, well, um, I and remember this is a, a self-declared straight women. So they all say, not nah, not really going on for me for the lesbian scenes. It's all about the straight scenes. And yeah, I, I really am turned on by. Um, sex with the friend, close friend, and the stranger really doesn't do it for me. Um, the plethysmograph, however, <laughs> um, says something entirely different. First of all, the, you know, as already indicated, the lesbian scenes are a big turn-on, as are the straight scenes. But then, the friends... Handsome though they are, strapping though they are, do absolutely nothing. It's like if you look at a graph and there's like the bottom line and then there's like a little dot like infinitesimally above that baseline and the strangers, of course, send the the plethysmograph spiking all the way. So what to do with this? Um, Again, I think dispelling, beginning to dispel the myth that... uh, you know, intimacy is the key to lust. There's all kinds of things I'd love to get into in conversation with you in a few minutes about that. But over and over again, as I branched out into the labs of other scientists and, and, and as I talk to women, you know, and, and the women I find, the way I work is I'll usually you know, talk to dozens of people, this was true in the prisons, just as it's true with these books about desire, and then gradually narrow it down so that I'm meeting with a a set of women over and over and over again, you know, every week we'll sit down for a couple hours. Um, And so over and over what I was hearing was whether from science or from individual women was calling into question this idea of intimacy being a spark. None of this is to say, and I really want to be careful here, none of this is to say that romance isn't important, that intimacy isn't important, that communication isn't important. I'm all for those things Um, for me uh, as a man. And I'm sure they're all important to all of us or almost all of us, but it is to question this equation, particular to women, that intimacy and communication are that sort of ignition for lust. All right, one last thing before we move on from uh, Meredith's work. And that is she... Uh, there was—I actually spoke an untruth before, because there was one category of porn that really didn't do much for uh, the women, as measured physically, and that was the lone man. And this is true, even for—yeah, I know, I know. And there's something even more disturbing. There's a lot of uh, light coming at me, so I can't tell how many men are, are out there. But um, you know, this is like one of those things you might want to cover your ears. So, all right. Uh, <laughs> So uh, even the straight women didn't show much physical response to this naked Adonis walking along the beach and like tossing a stone into the water. And again, really like you can see the muscles working. I mean, he's looking good. But here's the thing. And you wouldn't even know, you wouldn't even think of this as your first looking at it. You'd just be like, huh, okay, well, this guy looks great. Like... You know, why am I feeling nothing? Or, or, you know, why are women not feeling anything? But, okay, then Meredith runs this experiment where she just shows straight women four sets of still photographs. Uh, one of a woman kind of, they're all nude photographs, but one has sort of demure legs together, nude. Um, and they're also kind of disembodied, so they're mostly sort of thigh to... Belly, they're, you know, kind of disembodied genital shots, basically. So one is uh, woman nude, legs together. Uh, the next one is sort of, you know, legs open in, you know, more hardcore porn shot. And again, disembodied genitals. Uh, male not erect and male erect. And here with her straight women... Uh, even though they've been non-categorical in their response to porn, that is, responded to everything in those full pornography scenes, here there's a really striking difference for one of the shots, and that is that that erection shot for the straight women, again, it sends the plethysmograph soaring. And so a couple things to say about this for now, and then we can talk about this more later, if it's not too over the top and risky, sorry, um, and that is that when you think back to that Adonis along the beach, he looks kind of pretty well hung, but he's flaccid, and there's again and again in other labs, this gets reflected out, and it resonates with the work of other scientists, there's something about that image that isn't expressing desire, that isn't sexual, that isn't just electric enough. And there's something perhaps even a little deadening about it. Um, One other researcher speculated, you know, the the female body is always a sexual object. You can't, you know, it's always in this apparent state of sexual readiness, I suppose. or always ha- you can always project onto it. But the male body, unerect, might reflect some lack of sexuality um, that's sort of flattening. Whereas erect, anyway, that's, that's what the plethysmograph tells us. And, and we'll, and we'll uh, come back to that later. But all in all, it's not a cozy picture of female desire. It's not that intimacy leads to desire um, equation and I think sometimes about the women I spent so much time with and their stories and think particularly in this context about a woman named Isabel. She was 30 years old. She was one of those women that I narrowed down to. We met over and over and over again. She had this very, very handsome boyfriend. They had a great life together. They were living together. Um, She was kind of expecting him to propose at any time. Um, She loved him and there's this image that sticks in my mind. She loved, like, they slept really close together, and she loved in the mornings, like, waking up next to him, sort of face to face, and he, would, he didn't like the light that crept in through her apartment so he'd like throw a t-shirt over his face and, and, you know, to keep the light out. And she loved, as they were, you know, waking, to kind of peel back the t-shirt and they would gaze into each other's eyes. And it was like so close that, you know, you, when you can barely see each other and it's sort of blurry. And it was really, really romantic. I, I mean, it was moving to, to listen to her, but she dreaded his proposal because somewhere along the line, fairly early for her, I'd say this was a little atypical in how early it was, but it was representative nonetheless. Along the line, around six months in, she'd gone from really, really desiring him to not desiring him and now, kind of a couple years into the relationship, sort of avoiding, um, or not sort of, really avoiding (laughs) um, having sex so that it had become kind of a once a week chore. And she was really confounded. It was like it went against everything she'd been taught should be true. Because, again, handsome, great communicator, sensitive, knew her body. He felt, she felt like he was great in bed, sensitive in bed. And yet the lust had so dissipated that she didn't know what to do and was dreading this proposal. And, you know, I tell that story. He does propose um, as, I was, as I was following her journey. Um, this sort of contradiction of the coziness model, the monogamy-seeking model, the intimacy model of women's desire brings me to uh, the world of evolutionary psychology. Many of you may know uh, that field, but even if you don't, you've all but certainly absorbed its truth when it comes to sexuality, that is, its purported truth. Um, it, ar- around 1993 began to put forward quite strongly what's known in the field as parental investment theory, and it basically goes like this, you know this already, that men are programmed by evolution to spread their seed, and women are programmed by evolution, at least relatively speaking, to seek out one good man and to be comparatively well-suited to monogamy. The theory comes in economic terms, and we today in our culture love economic terms. They seem to mean solid evidence. They seem to mean incontrovertible truth. They offer us the promise that some fairly simple and stark uh, paradigms will explain us to ourselves. So the economy of that parental investment theory goes like this. Men have limitless seed, why not spend it, right? You can keep your genetic legacy going. Women don't have limitless seed. They have to uh, acquire a lot of calories. And that's what I mean. It gets very technical. And, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with that in and of itself. They have to uh, collect and spend a lot of calories in uh, child birth and in child rearing, so breastfeeding, for instance, more calories taken in uh, during, you know, nine months of pregnancy, more calories taken in, etc. Um, they have to delay bearing further children while during the early period of, of rearing the current child, etc. So the economy speaks, seems to anyway, speak very strongly to the idea that women should be more concerned with that one child, thus seek out one good man, one good provider, right and again we get into all kinds of other myths the visual doesn't really matter cuz you, you really want is a good provider great income earner means more to women than it does to men okay so what do these papers hold besides that what do these papers hold to prove that every time i lay out this theory i think gosh that really does sound convincing right? it's hard to think past that it is incontrovertible that women can produce fewer children than men can. All right. So what do evolutionary psychologists do to say, okay, this theory sounds good, now let's prove it. Well, they basically go out and ask women everywhere from America to Palestinian uh, Muslim villages how... Questions like, how many men or women would you ideally have as sex partners over the course of your lifetime? Well, yes, men say more than women tend to say. But what does this really mean? What does this really prove, right? There's no question that men tend, you know, have, that there are these disparities. But what do they reflect? Evolutionary psychologists would have us think about the following circular reasoning. What's prevalent now in our culture means what was always true way back when and always true way back men mean, when means genetically scripted in. And therefore, what we are enacting and feeling now is the product of genetic scripts that were formed long, long, long ago when we were formed evolutionarily. But there's something problematic about that, right? Because it's just, it's taking a current cultural fact and turning it into an inherent fact with really no proof whatsoever that that's so. All right. Now, nevertheless, we're left with these economic terms that seem incontrovertible. So I thought, let me spend at least a little time thinking just thinking around the edges of that. And I do that in all kinds of ways, and mostly it's with women. But I did spend about a week at a primatology center, just seeing what our close ancestors might teach us. And so uh, I went down to the most prominent primatology center in the States. And I just want to read you a little bit. Among my women characters is uh, one of my favorites, Deidre. Her unruly red-blonde hair tufting atop her head, Deidre sat beside Oppenheimer. She lipped his ear. She mouthed his chest. She kissed his belly over and over, lips lingering with each kiss. After a while, he pulled himself up and strolled away from her attentions, glancing back over his shoulder to see if she was following. She was. Deidre who was probably the most reserved female monkey in the compound, started in again on his white-haired torso as they sat together on a concrete curb. The habitat was filled with ladders and ropes and assorted apparatus donated by a local fire department and by McDonald's. An environment of trees and vines would have been too expensive to create and maintain. A trio of monkey children sprinted toward a tube, disappeared inside it, burst from the other end, and raced around for another run-through, berserk with joy. From a platform on a steel tower, I watched with Kim Wallen, his beard silver, his eyes alight. A psychologist and neuroendocrinologist, he spent much of his time here at Yerkes, an Emory University Research Center outside Atlanta that was home to 2,000 primates. We gazed down at the habitat 75 rhesus, a monkey species that had been sent into orbit in spaceships in the 50s and 60s as stand-ins for humans to see if we could survive trips to the moon. Wallen had lived on a farm as a child when his father, a psychologist, decided to try out a utopian dream of cooperative goat-rearing. Wallen's observation of animal sexuality had begun then. He had been watching monkeys now for decades. Females were passive, he said. That was the theory in the middle 70s. That was the wisdom. He remembered the start of his career. Deidre's face, always a bit redder than most, was luminous this morning, lit scarlet with lust as she lifted it from Oppenheimer's chest. The prevailing model, he said, was that female hormones affected female pheromones, affected the female's smell, her attractivity to the male. The male initiated all sexual behavior. What science had managed to miss in the monkeys, what it had effectively erased, was female desire. And it had missed more than that. In this breed used as our astronaut doubles, females are the bullies and murderers, the generals in brutal warfare, the governors. This this had been noted in journal articles back in the 30s and 40s, but thereafter it had gone unrecognized, the articles buried, and the behavior oddly unperceived. It so flew in the face of prevailing ideas about the dominant role of males, Wallen said, that it was just ignored. Um, And I should say it largely still is just ignored. I want to read you a little bit more about Deidre because I grew so fond of her. But let me just summarize what I saw there because I want to um, talk about a couple other things and li- then leave time, plenty of time for conversation. So Deidre, really, truly the most... Res- I mean, of course monkeys have personalities and I got to know her and I got to know her through Wallen's team. And really the most modest, reserved, off by herself monkey and very much to the point here, a great mother. She stood out as a mother. She would let her babies stay longer on her back. She was extremely protective when she'd been her clan. And and these are female-run clans. They're female-run politics. It's female-run warfare. When her clan was under threat, she was extra protective of her young. But when she wanted Oppenheimer, when she wanted sex... I watched her with this little baby next to her just continually. She was like leaving it, forgetting it. She was oblivious to that baby. That baby had to scooting, scooting, scooting after her just to keep up as she chased after Oppenheimer. And she just became so clear. Who is the stalker in this situation? Who is quite <laughs> literally, and it's such a loaded word, but it's a word we need to linger on, quite literally the objectifier was Deidre as she went after um, her sexual prey. And I finally sort of asked, you know, uh, Wallen would acknowledge he, he sort of gave all the blindness, he forgave to some degree the blindness of all the scientists that had come before him in that it's true that if you only focus on the sexual act itself, right, you're going to see women as passive and receptive, or females in this case, as passive and receptive, right? Less, less intense, all those things. The male monkeys are finally, as I describe when I get to the scene of monkey porn here, um, Deidre having her way is still, right? And the male monkey is thrusting from behind. But everything leading up to that is not still whatsoever on Deidre's part. And, and, you know, this is true of other monkey species. And, um, and in fact... Uh, And this will lead us to sort of the the final area that I want to touch on. In order to keep Reese's sexual life going, um, Wallen has to switch out the males in the compound every three years because the sex, which is almost always female-initiated, doesn't happen once, monkeys like Deidre just get bored, and they tend to get bored of the males every three years. And, the, and, and this is not, you know, for, the, for those of you who might think, oh, that's a product of this, you know, McDonald's, you know, uh, provided compound. No, this mirrors exactly what happens in the wild. And finally, for those of you who might think, well, okay, you know, Deidre and her fellow female monkeys are programmed to procreate. No. We need, this, this is like this distortion that even if you accept nothing else that I'm going to argue today, please get, this was, and this was hard for me to get past too. Evolution did not program female monkeys to say, I want to have a baby. This, as far as we know, monkeys are not having that level of cognition. They're not saying, my time has come, I better go have sex because I want a baby. No. They are programmed because sex is very pleasurable and they seek out pleasure. That is desire. Monkeys have desire. Rats have desire. Experiments with uh, animals can show this over and over and over again. It's just we don't want to see it and manage to blind ourselves to it. And, and you know, for me, one of the fascinating things about um, writing this book was not only because it took me um, into the sexual realm that I've always thought was so important, but also because it ta- taught me again and again lessons about perception and about preconception. And here was a world of scientists who no one is questioning, you know, meant to be objective, right? We we all come to what we do with goodwill and with open minds, I think. almost Almost all of us do. And yet had for decades, even despite these early papers in the 30s and 40s, managed to look right past what was so comically true. I wish I had time to read it. So comically true when when watching Deidre and the other monkeys about who was the aggressor. So, you know, it was preconception getting in the way of perception or wishful perception, perhaps on the part of male scientists, getting in the way of perception. Um, And that then... Not only distorting understanding, but I think creating a false idea of normality, right? What is normal? Normal is that females, that women, are at least a little bit, and I'm not naive, we live in a very sexually liberated culture, a seemingly sexually saturated culture, these aren't Victorian times, but still, leads to this idea that women are biologically programmed to be more passive, more receptive more modest, more coy, as Darwin put it, Um, and that in turn, by creating that idea of normality, normality, of course, is a sort of self-reinforcing notion, because None of us, or very few of us, I should say, really want to be abnormal. There's something pretty comforting about being within the umbrella, at least, the somewhat wide, but not too wide, uh, umbrella of normality. And so I think that affects the way we behave. Certainly, I think it also affects the way we experience things emotionally. It affects the way we raise our boys and girls, which we still do when it comes to sexuality differently. I think that's something too to return to. All right, let me let me touch just a little bit on monogamy itself. Um, so, uh, it's a problem, right? It's um, <laughs> and it's a and I think it's a, a special problem, not for men, whose lack of monogamous impulses. Is taken for granted and forgiven, and thus the burden of it, no matter how we choose to live, is somewhat lifted. I think it's a particular problem for women for whom those, uh, you know, that biological uh, drive toward having more than one partner is denied uh, to some degree, perhaps denied to a very great degree, and living with that, I think. Uh, poses all sorts of problems. Um, I think even, you know, I, don't, I can't remember if Australia works under the uh, European version of the sort of psychiatric Bible or the uh, American-Canadian one, but, but both offer, you know, offer a lesson in this problem. Normal female desire has, oddly enough, been increasingly defined not as a drive, but as an emotion, and that sounds sort of politically correct and nice, and it acknowledges complexity, but what it denies is that idea of drive. It denies lust. It actually comes down to shapes. Back in the 50s, there was an, an arrow, and now there's a circle, and its normal is like, hmm, takes a long time to get there, to lust. And what it's really describing in the end, and the, the woman who uh, ran the, the uh, committee for the, the revising of the Psychiatric Bible would acknowledge this to me, um, what it's really describing in the end is a desire that takes a long time to build because they're talking about long-term partnerships, so, uh, which reflects one kind of alarming sort of funny German study, Uh, thousands of committed couples, and male desire sort of declines gradually, female desire, three years or so in, kind of takes a sharp (laughs) plummet. Um, So again, just overturning this idea that we've lived with for so long about women being made for monogamy. Um, All right. You know, we live in this paradox. I want to talk to you about that paradox between the longing for love and the longing for permanence, longing for forever, longing to be loved unconditionally, and then the longing for the ecstasy uh, that lust brings. But let me just leap forward and hope that we'll be able to come back to some of the things I want to talk to you about and read you from this series of messages uh, from a woman in Queensland who said, I'm, you know, I'm so sorry I won't be there. In Sydney, uh, dear Daniel, hi, I'm from Australia. If I may be so bold, I'd like to share my story, some of it, with you. I am a 62-year-old woman. I've reared six children. My 30-year marriage broke down three years ago. And I haven't had sex since. I got onto a dating website just before Xmas. Horrible experience. Took myself off. Before I did, I was in contact with a man slightly younger than me. It happened over New Year's. And very soon, into our chatting, sex talk began. Way confusing for me, but also way liberating. My husband and I had fairly regular sex, but he was so overwhelming with his sexual persona, I don't think I ever really had a chance to find and develop mine. And child-rearing for many years, well, sex just seemed to be another chore a lot of the time. My kids, youngest is 16, on their way, out of my head, so to speak. So, this man with whom I text, after three months we still haven't met and haven't seen photos of each other, a very strange and weird experiment, but one in which I've really been able to experience a part of my desire that has blown away my past persona. I never masturbated before to orgasm, now I do, nor had many sexual fantasies, Amazing how going without sex for three years releases it all. (laughs) Now, either with text, with this phantom man, or just alone, my fantasy life is thrilling, very erotic, and has extended from being with men to being with women. I'm two odd years past menopause. It is the weirdest thing. Whether this newfound desire realm ever translates into actual sexual encounters, yet to be seen. Message two. I'm finding with my new erotic life, if I may call it that, given it involves just me and a man who texts me, is that my desire emerges from my body every day. No images set it off. Don't even have texts to set it off. More the other way around. I initiate with this man when my body elicits desire. I feel that a real man in the flesh complicates at this time. (laughs) 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 I... (laughs) I guess, to me, as a 62-year-old woman, I'm loving that my erotic self still has such life. Now, this one came just yesterday. Um, And just the last two lines, of it were. Have a great day at the festival. Female desire, eh? It's pretty fucking potent.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well done, well done. (laughs) <laughs> How wonderful. Uh, <laughs> and, and look, I mean, vibrator sounds so passe. Where do we get a platysmograph? <laughs> I want one.
1: I'm, g- I'm going to tell Meredith to put them on the market. Ah,
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a trip you've been on. It has been. And in some sense, that that letter that you received from the woman in Queensland encapsulates it all, doesn't it?
1: Yeah. I I loved getting... I mean, I get a lot of those um, kinds of messages, some of them (laughs) sexual, some of them angry, some of them doubtful, (laughs) some of them supportive. Um, This was among my favourites.
0: Now, could we have the room lights up ever so slightly and these ones (laughs) down a little bit if possible so we can actually see you in your... Splendour. There are two microphones, one on the right, one on the left. Uh, The crowd will part because they want you to ask your questions. Don't hold back. We've only got 14 minutes and 25 seconds, so we want to get your interaction now. So get queuing, get commenting, get questioning. Ah, that's better. Now we can really see you. Excellent. Uh, So have we got one up there? Yes, we have. Let's just go for it, shall we? Hi. Thanks for the, the presentation, and, I didn't think I was going to ask a question, but um, the story about Deja uh, reminds me of actually a novel that is um, set to be the greatest uh, book ever written by um, Leo Tolstoy, um, Anna Karenina, and I kind of wonder. I'm not a literature person, so I I don't have opinion on the appraisal of that. Greatest book ever written, but um, would you say that, you know, that book has done something to shape the norm of what's acceptable for women, and that um, is it a phenomenon then, or do you find that it is still a phenomenon now? Thank you. So it's not just a scientific narrative, is no. it? There's all sorts of narratives coming Thank at you us. So, yeah.
1: That, okay, that's a great question. I wish I could answer the Anarcherena part of it more intelligently. It's been a while since I've read that book, and I more recently read *War and Peace*, and so have this. <laughs> that's a pretty lusty book. But in any case, I guess you're asked the the essence of your question is: Have things changed, or are things you know still in some earlier mode? Of course, things have changed. But I don't think as much as we assume, like I said very briefly, I think we still, I have a a son and a daughter, and um, I think we still raise our girls and boys with different expectations, with different levels of protection when it comes to sex, you know, celebrating the kind of the Randy, the lustful, the sort of, oh, my son's going to have all the women kind of thing when we, you know, watch him you know, chatting with the little girls in the playground, and something else, <laughs> some other message gets presented to have little you girls. Have felt that as a father? Uh, you know, I'm so conscious of it, and, you know, my kids are... My daughter's uh, 21, my son's 19, so we have pretty open conversations. So I hope that I've gotten, you know, somewhat past that, but I'm sure um, that that is still a factor even for me, and I am so... Aware of it. And I think it's just a factor throughout the culture that we, we want something with, you know, perhaps unconsciously, want something different for our daughters and, and protect them in a, in a way that communicates a different message and in the end, a different level of permission about sexuality. And I think that has all kinds of effects. We probably don't have time to really get into this now, but even at the kind of neurological level.
0: Well, you've got people like Luann Brizendine. She's written the book called The Female Brain and she's written a male follow-up as well yeah. where she, you know, she perpetuates this story that uh, g- girl brains are about connecting, they're machines for connecting, and boy brains are sh- machines for lust. And that's the sort of language that she uses, absolute rockin' bestseller.
1: It, it absolutely is, and that book makes me scream. I will spare you the scream. Um, <laughs> But, you know, one of the things she does there is pretend that there's fMRI, um, you know, magnetic resonating imagery uh, research to back that up. I assure you there is not. Our our imaging capabilities are nowhere near detailed enough to find the little, you know, sort of interstices of the brain where, um, you know, that would define that kind of emotional Distinction. There is just nothing, there is no hard science to back up that claim that women's brains are made for connection and mm. male brains, as she puts it, for frenzies of lust. Mm. Please please don't be fooled as, as comforting as those simple explanations may be. So
0: here's what I'm going to do, because we've got 10 minutes and I know there'll be lots of interesting questions. I'm going to um, take a couple at a time and if you could keep them fairly succinct, either question or comment, just keep them succinct and we'll do a bit of a tag team. Thank you. Uh, hi, that was a great presentation
2: today. Um, I loved your narrative style, and I'm not sure if it's a female brain, but I feel connected to that story with Isabel. Is there an update to what happened with her? Did she marry him and have an open marriage, <laughs> no. or what happened? <laughs> <laughs> That's
1: such a good question. I um, and you know, and thank you because uh, the narrative part of this is really, really important to me. Um, I'll take you through the night. Well, maybe I should say leave you in suspense. I mean. Uh, There's a snowy night, it's very romantic, it's one of New York's biggest snowstorms. She comes home from shopping and she's in the kitchen and he uh, has his hand behind his back and gets down on one knee and from there I will let you read the story.
0: (laughs) Because I wrote down, did she say yes? (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Daniel. I want to ask you about the work of Gail
3: Dines, who's a media, um, uh, studies new media and also sociologist um, specialising in the pervasiveness or the industrialisation of porn, which she believes is in fact altering the male template for relationships, particularly in young men. And there seems to be some research and evidence that backs that up. In the light of your theory about female desire, um, do you believe that this is the case?
1: You know, you're asking about two fundamentally different things. Which is one have you know our male brains, in a sense, affected by watching lots of porn, and the other is about uh, female desire. And I think it's important. I will. I, I won't duck the question, but I think it's important to make a distinction. You know, this book I really tried not to talk about men and what men want. This is an attempt, odd though it may be that I'm a man and trying to see across that very subjective divide, but to, to listen to women, women scientists, everyday women, about women's desire. Um, the pornography debate rages among the scientists I spend my time with. I think there's a lot to be said on both sides. However, I am very reluctant to see pornography as you know, sort of the force of Evil, of evil, the force of misshaping desire. I, I'm skeptical of that. In, in the absence of proof, and there's a lot that flies around on both sides. In the absence of proof, I wouldn't want to be constraining uh, pornography. In fact, you know, given Meredith Chivers' research, um, I'm wondering about pornography and women. There's not a lot of data yet, but. Um, it's, what there is is
0: But it's is interesting, interesting watching how pornography is, and I don't, there's not a lot of data attached to it, yeah. but how pornography is um, shaping young guys' expectations of what they're meant to do and be, and also young girls' expectations yeah. of what they're meant to do and be in those early sexual encounters. Right.
1: I, I know, and that's where caution is certainly mm. warranted and worry um, might be warranted. I. It's just such a fraught place that to put, to infuse politics into sex, to inject politics into sex always seems dangerous to me because what it seems to do, no matter which way you're coming from, you know, whether you're an evangelical Christian or a, you know, pro, you know, sex positive, um, you know, campaigner, is to prescribe the way we should
0: and also to name porn as one thing, you know, as if it's yes. just one entity, which it's not. Let's right. grab some more. Uh, I'm going to take two in a row, if that's okay. Yeah. Um, so okay. if you could keep it fairly succinct. Thanks. Sure.
2: Thanks, Daniel. Love the presentation. We're skimming parts of your book as you were presenting. I'm a woman. I can do two things at once. Um, <laughs> I'm a sexologist in Sydney, and I do see a lot of women, I will focus on women, since this is all about female desire, even though I'm doing a PhD in male desire, but I do see women with ...with um, desire that's gone out the window for various reasons... ...often with menopause, often postnatally... ...but at different stages of the relationship. The thing that I get really frustrated about... ...and the profession does as a whole... ...is that for so long, particularly post-viagra... ...desire has been overly pathologised. Now, we know that a pill will come in and help... ...but it won't um, be the magical cure... ...and it won't be the be-all and end-all. And our sexual well-being and our emotional well-being... ...is really comprised of three important pillars our biological state at any particular point in time, psychological state, and that can be depression, anxiety, stress, fatigue, and a third important point, and this so often gets neglected in the Western world, and it was a point that was really enforced last um, year in September at an international meeting I went to in Brazil, and that is our socio-cultural background. Just
0: narrow it to a so question now. it's a myriad Thank of you.
2: variables that affect our well-being, and I'm so interested, and I'll be, I will be so interested to hear your take on that, given that... At, any point there can be a myriad of variables that will inhibit somebody's desire. Thank you.
0: Fantastic comment and question. And I'll grab yours as well if that's okay. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel, for your speech. You
3: um, didn't really address what your—you dispelled a lot of myths, but you didn't really address what your perspective was. I was wondering what you sort of thought about the idea that women are attracted to the alpha males um, for short-term sex, if you will, um, and will settle for the beta males, if you will, for the more protective things, and that's in part governed by um, a variety of hormones that are secreted, you know, oxytocin, serotonin, dopamine, in the early stages of a relationship, which are basically designed to um, have have couples bond for the period of procreation, so around about two years. Um, And after that, males who are, you know, have a lot more testosterone, a lot more driven um, sexually, they're the alpha males, they're the okay. people who are attracted, and then people will ultimately and narrow it to a question for, for us. the emotional and
1: cultural Okay, okay let me, oh, I, right, th- I actually think these two yeah, go together in a way, so, yes. so let me um, respond. Okay, Thank so you, but look, it
0: just shows there's expertise in the room, which we there's celebrate as well. <laughs> yeah.
1: Thanks, and um, I think that what you're laying out is an evolutionary psychology adaptation to the original round of criticism that said, well, maybe you've got it. Oversimplified things. So now, what evolutionary psychology offers is a sort of bifurcated model that says there's one set of you know sort of uh, biological imperatives during uh, you know when one wants or is driven to procreate, particularly you know at the at ovulation, and then another set that are in play at other points. And that in itself is a simplification. There's more you know more complexity to the model, but it's still a model that that. and evolutionary psychologists sort of down, you know, try to uh, deny this just a bit, but it's a model that so emphasizes this uh, kind of genetic inevitability that so uh, dismisses any cultural factor that I think it's it's blinding, and so I I think what you're laying out is a theory, right, but not a it's a theory that more, at this point, gets in the way. Well, that's than what it, I
3: was alluding to in terms of the beta settling down. That's yeah. all cultural-based. Yeah. You I'm, need that comfort to raise, actually. Yeah. Kid I'm, kid I'm, I'm just... I, I, I,
1: <laughs> I see what you're saying. I just think once we get into that idea of, you know, that alpha and beta and then the, you know, time of... I think time of, you know, child procreating, time of child raising, I... And that sort of sense of predetermination, I think we're in tricky territory. The journey, if you just you know sort of to respond on a more personal level, and I think for both Meredith and I, something odd happened that you know it doesn't usually happen journalists and, and person they're writing about that we sort of move in tandem but she was very determined eight years ago to say this biologically is the truth i'm going to strip away culture i'm going to find a biological truth and i was attracted to that journey because yeah who wouldn't be i'm find the truth um (laughs) but i think we both separately sort of saw more and more that force of culture getting in the way and there are all kinds of examples of that Um, in the book, some of them very personal for her, for the scientists involved, some of them more scientific.
0: But if we bring it back to that question around the pathologisation of desire, you know, you've outlined that for centuries, millennia, there's been this assumption that it's normal for women to have low desire. Now there's a sort of flip side happening, that it's abnormal for women to have low desire, so we can medicate now. And it's a complex discussion, and many advocate the use of testosterone for menopausal women. And you know, it's, yeah. a, there, there's a complex story there. And I wonder how you, how you view that shift.
1: Yeah. So complex that my mind's going in about yeah, four too. different directions. <laughs> i trying to sum it um, up in the last 50 let's seconds. Let's do a we tiny have. bit of comedy <laughs> and then back to serious. So um, until the 1600s, scientists, this goes back to the Greeks, were absolutely convinced that women's orgasm wasn't necessary to procreation. Um, you can imagine that, that created an entirely different uh, set of essentials when people thought about women's desire. That, As soon as science began to discover that, you know, the... Began to divorce the egg from from uh, pleasure uh, that you know shifted away, and of course with Victorianism we had an entire paradigm shift. I do worry about what you're saying is sort of pathologizing in a reverse direction almost. Because uh, um,
0: there's an empowerment it, narrative around that that yes. you can you can take a medication and feel desire you know yes. feel desire again. So yeah. it's really quite complex, isn't it?
1: It's really complex. Um, it comes down to, I think, you know, overly asserting ideas of normality. You know, one of the dangers for me in writing this book was generalizing too much. The last book about desire was so much for me about individual individualized desire. This one, kind of by necessity, was about how things might look on average. Um, so it's something I'm constantly aware about, constantly thinking about, um, and yet. Again, I kind of wanted to sort of, at whatever risk, sort of strip away the preconceptions, see what was there. And I'm reminded of an Australian uh, psychologist and MD, um, so psychiatrist, who followed a huge uh, number of women through the phase of life, premenopausal, menopausal, out, um, beyond menopause. And what she said to me very clearly was, you know, look, hormones matter, age matters. We're gonna have some effect on desire by because of those factors. But new partner trumps hormones every time.
0: <laughs> and it's a great story in the book. <laughs> <Thanks>. <laughs> on that note, we've run out of time, but what a terrific, terrific presentation by thank Daniel. You. Thank, you.
2: Thank. thank you.
0: And thank you. Thank you for your fantastic questions as well. Daniel is about to do a book signing in the foyer where all the book signings are happening. Get along if you'd like him to etch his name on your book. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you.